Section 32 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 32. He had another particularity, of which none of his friends ever ventured to ask an explanation. It appeared to me some superstitious habit which he had contracted early, and from which he had never called upon his reason to disentangle him. This was his anxious care to go out or in at a door or passage by a certain number of steps from a certain point, or at least so as that either his right or his left foot, I am not certain which, should constantly make the first actual movement when he came close to the door or passage. Thus I conjecture, for I have upon innumerable occasions observed him suddenly stop, and then seem to count his steps with a deep earnestness, and when he had neglected or gone wrong in this sort of magical movement, I have seen him go back again, put himself in a proper position to begin the ceremony, and having gone through it, break from his abstraction, walk briskly on and join his companion. A strange instance of something of this nature, even when on horseback, happened when he was in the Isle of Skye. Sir Joshua Reynolds has observed him to go a good way about rather than cross a particular alley in Leicester Fields, but this Sir Joshua imputed to his having had some disagreeable recollection associated with it. That the most minute singularities which belonged to him, and made very observable parts of his appearance and manner, may not be omitted, it is requisite to mention that while talking or even musing as he sat in his chair, he commonly held his head to one side towards his right shoulder, and shook it in a tremulous manner, moving his body backwards and forwards, and rubbing his left knee in the same direction, with the palm of his hand. In the intervals of articulating, he made various sounds with his mouth, sometimes as if ruminating, or what is called chewing the cud, sometimes giving a half-whistle, sometimes making his tongue play backwards from the roof of his mouth, as if clucking like a hen, and sometimes protruding it against his upper gums in front, as if pronouncing quickly under his breath, too, too, too. All this accompanied sometimes with a thoughtful look, but more frequently with a smile. Generally, when he had concluded a period in the course of a dispute, by which time he was a good deal exhausted by violence and vociferation, he used to blow out his breath like a whale. This, I supposed, was a relief to his lungs, and seemed in him to be a contemptuous mode of expression, as if he had made the arguments of his opponent fly like chaff before the wind. I am fully aware how very obvious an occasion I here give for the sneering jocularity of such as have no relish of an exact likeness, which to render complete, he who draws it must not disdain the slightest strokes. But if witlings should be inclined to attack this account, let them have the candour to quote what I have offered in my defence. He was for some time in the summer at Easton Mordet, Northamptonshire, on a visit to the Reverend Dr. Percy, now Bishop of Dromore. Whatever dissatisfaction he felt at what he considered as a slow progress in intellectual improvement, we find that his heart was tender, and his affections warm, as appears from the following very kind letter. To Joshua Reynolds, Esquire, in Leicester Fields, London. Dear Sir, I did not hear of your sickness till I heard likewise of your recovery, and therefore escaped that part of your pain which every man must feel to whom you are known as you are known to me. Having had no particular account of your disorder, 
I know not in what state it has left you. If the amusement of my company can exhilarate the languor of a slow recovery, I will not delay a day to come to you, for I know not how I can so effectually promote my own pleasure as by pleasing you, or my own interest as by preserving you, in whom, if I should lose you, I should lose almost the only man whom I call a friend. Pray let me hear of you from yourself or from dear Miss Reynolds. Make my compliments to Mr. Mudge. I am, dear sir, your most affectionate and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. At the Reverend Mr. Percy's at Easton Mordet, Northamptonshire, by Castle Ashby, August the 19th, 1764. 1765, I Early in the year 1765 he paid a short visit to the University of Cambridge with his friend Mr. Beauclerk. There is a lively, picturesque account of his behaviour on this visit in The Gentleman's Magazine for March 1785, being an extract of a letter from the late Dr. John Sharp. The two following sentences are very characteristical. He drank his large potations of tea with me, interrupted by many an indignant contradiction and many a noble sentiment. Several persons got into his company the last evening at Trinity, where, about twelve, he began to be very great, stripped poor Mrs. Macaulay to the very skin, then gave her for his toast, and drank her in two bumpers. The strictness of his self-examination and scrupulous Christian humility appear in his pious meditation on Easter Day this year. I purpose again to partake of the blessed sacrament, yet when I consider how vainly I have hitherto resolved at this annual commemoration of my Saviour's death, to regulate my life by his laws, I am almost afraid to renew my resolutions. The concluding words are very remarkable, and show that he laboured under a severe depression of spirits. Since the last Easter I have reformed no evil habit, my time has been unprofitably spent, and seems as a dream that has left nothing behind. My memory grows confused, and I know not how the days pass over me. Good Lord, deliver me. No man was more gratefully sensible of any kindness done to him than Johnson. There is a little circumstance in his diary this year which shows him in a very amiable light. July the 2nd. I paid Mr. Simpson ten guineas which he had formerly lent me in my necessity, and for which Tetty expressed her gratitude. July the 8th. I lent Mr. Simpson ten guineas more. Here he had a pleasing opportunity of doing the same kindness to an old friend which he had formerly received from him. Indeed, his liberality as to money was very remarkable. The next article in his diary is, July the 16th. I received £75. Lent Mr. Davis 25 Trinity College, Dublin, at this time, surprised Johnson with a spontaneous compliment of the highest academical honours, by creating him Doctor of Laws. The diploma, which is in my possession, is as follows. Omnibus ad quos presentes literae pevenirent, salutem. Nos praepositus et socii seniores collegii sacrosanctae et individuae trinitatis reginae Elizabethae juxta Dublin, testamur Samueli Johnson, amigero, ob egregiam scriptorum elegantiam et utilitatem, gratiam concessam fuisse progrado doctoratus in utroque jure, octavo die iulii, Anno Domini, millesimo, septingentesimo, sexagesimo, quinto. In cuius rei testimonium singulorum manus et sigillum co in hisce utimur apposuimus, 
vicesimo tertio die iulii, anno domini millesimo septigentesimo sexagesimo quinto. Gul Clement, Fran Andrews, R. Murray, Thomas Wilson, Pripes, Robert Law, Thomas Leland, Michael Kearney. This unsolicited mark of distinction, conferred on so great a literary character, did much honour to the judgment and liberal spirit of that learned body. Johnson acknowledged the favour in a letter to Dr. Leyland, one of their number, but I have not been able to obtain a copy of it. He appears this year to have been seized with a temporary fit of ambition, for he had thoughts both of studying law and of engaging in politics. His prayer before the study of law is truly admirable. September 26, 1765 Almighty God, the giver of wisdom, without whose help resolutions are vain, without whose blessing study is ineffectual, enable me, if it be thy will, to attain such knowledge as may qualify me to direct the doubtful and instruct the ignorant, to prevent wrongs and terminate contentions, and grant that I may use that knowledge which I shall attain to thy glory and my own salvation. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. His prayer in the view of becoming a politician is entitled Engaging in Politics with H. Blank N. No doubt his friend, the Right Honourable William Gerard Hamilton, for whom during a long acquaintance he had a great esteem, and to whose conversation he once paid this high compliment. I am very unwilling to be left alone, sir, and therefore I go with my company down the first pair of stairs in some hopes that they may perhaps return again. I go with you, sir, as far as the street door. In what particular department he intended to engage does not appear, nor can Mr. Hamilton explain. His prayer is in general terms. Enlighten my understanding with knowledge of right, and govern my will by thy laws, that no deceit may mislead me, nor temptation corrupt me, that I may always endeavour to do good and hinder evil. There is nothing upon the subject in his diary. This year was distinguished by his being introduced into the family of Mr. Thrale, one of the most eminent brewers in England, and member of Parliament for the borough of Southwark. Foreigners are not a little amazed when they hear of brewers, distillers, and men in similar departments of trade held forth as persons of considerable consequence. In this great commercial country it is natural that a situation which produces much wealth should be considered as very respectable, and no doubt honest industry is entitled to esteem. But perhaps the too rapid advance of men of low extraction tends to lessen the value of that distinction by birth and gentility which has ever been found beneficial to the grand scheme of subordination. Johnson used to give this account of the rise of Mr. Thrale's father. He worked at six shillings a week for twenty years in the great brewery, which afterwards was his own. The proprietor of it had an only daughter who was married to a nobleman. It was not fit that a peer should continue the business. On the old man's death, therefore, the brewery was to be sold. To find a purchaser for so large a property was a difficult matter, and after some time it was suggested that it would be advisable to treat with Thrale, a sensible, active, honest man who had been employed in the house, and to transfer the whole to him for thirty thousand pounds, security being taken upon the property. This was accordingly settled. In eleven years Thrale paid the purchase money. He acquired a large fortune and lived to be a member of Parliament for Southwark. But what was most remarkable was the liberality with which he used his riches. He gave his son and daughters the best education, 
the esteem which his good conduct procured him from the nobleman who had married his master's daughter made him be treated with much attention and his son both at school and at the university of oxford associated with young men of the first rank his allowance from his father after he left college was splendid no less than a thousand a year this in a man who had risen as old thrale did was a very extraordinary instance of generosity he used to say if this young dog does not find so much after i am gone as he expects let him remember that he has had a great deal in my own time the son though in affluent circumstances had good sense enough to carry on his father's trade which was of such extent that i remember he once told me he would not quit it for an annuity of ten thousand a year not said he that i get ten thousand a year by it but it is an estate to a family having left daughters only the property was sold for the immense sum of one hundred and thirty five thousand pounds a magnificent proof of what may be done by fair trade in no long period of time there may be some who think that a new system of gentility might be established upon principles totally different from what have hitherto prevailed our present heraldry it may be said is suited to the barbarous times in which it had its origin it is chiefly founded upon ferocious merit upon military excellence why in civilized times we may be asked should there not be rank and honors upon principles which independent of long custom are certainly not less worthy and which when once allowed to be connected with elevation and precedency would obtain the same dignity in our imagination why should not the knowledge the skill the expertness the assiduity and the spirited hazards of trade and commerce when crowned with success be entitled to give those flattering distinctions by which mankind are so universally captivated such are the specious but false arguments for a proposition which always will find numerous advocates in a nation where men are every day starting up from obscurity to wealth to refute them is needless the general sense of mankind cries out with irresistible force un gentilhomme est toujours gentilhomme mr thrale had married miss hester lynch salisbury of good welsh extraction a lady of lively talents improved by education that johnson's introduction into mr thrale's family which contributed so much to the happiness of his life was owing to her desire for his conversation is very probable and a general supposition but it is not the truth mr murphy who was intimate with mr thrale having spoken very highly of dr johnson he was requested to make them acquainted this being mentioned to johnson he accepted of an invitation to dinner at thrale's and was so much pleased with his reception both by mr and mrs thrale and they so much pleased with him that his invitations to their house were more and more frequent till at last he became one of the family and an apartment was appropriated to him both in their house at southwark and in their villa at streatham johnson had a very sincere esteem for mr thrale as a man of excellent principles a good scholar well skilled in trade of a sound understanding and of manners such as presented the character of a plain independent english squire as this family will frequently be mentioned in the course of the following pages and as a false notion has prevailed that mr thrale was inferior and in some degree insignificant compared with mrs thrale it may be proper to give a true state of the case from the authority of johnson himself in his own words i know no man said he who is more master of his wife and family than thrale if he but holds up a finger he is obeyed it is a great mistake to suppose that she is above him in literary attainments she is more flippant but he has ten times her learning 
He is a regular scholar, but her learning is that of a schoolboy in one of the lower forms. My readers may naturally wish for some representation of the figures of this couple. Mr. Thrale was tall, well-proportioned, and stately. As for Madam, or my mistress, by which epithets Johnson used to mention Mrs. Thrale, she was short, plump, and brisk. She has herself given us a lively view of the idea which Johnson had of her person, on appearing before him in a dark-coloured gown. You little creatures should never wear those sort of clothes, however. They are unsuitable in every way. What, have not all insects gay colours? Mr. Thrale gave his wife a liberal indulgence, both in the choice of their company and in the mode of entertaining them. He understood and valued Johnson without remission from their first acquaintance to the day of his death. Mrs. Thrale was enchanted with Johnson's conversation for its own sake, and had also a very allowable vanity in appearing to be honoured with the attention of so celebrated a man. Nothing could be more fortunate for Johnson than this connection— he had at Mr. Thrale's all the comforts and even luxuries of life. His melancholy was diverted, and his irregular habits lessened by association with an agreeable and well-ordered family. He was treated with the utmost respect, and even affection. The vivacity of Mrs. Thrale's literary talk roused him to cheerfulness and exertion, even when they were alone. But this was not often the case, for he found here a constant succession of what gave him the highest enjoyment— the society of the learned, the witty, and the eminent in every way, who were assembled in numerous companies, called forth his wonderful powers and gratified him with admiration, to which no man could be insensible. In the October of this year, he at length gave to the world his edition of Shakespeare, which, if it had no other merit but that of producing his preface, in which the excellencies and defects of that immortal bard are displayed with a masterly hand, the nation would have had no reason to complain. A blind, indiscriminate admiration of Shakespeare had exposed the British nation to the ridicule of foreigners. Johnson, by candidly admitting the faults of his poet, had the more credit in bestowing on him deserved and indisputable praise, and doubtless none of all his panegyrists have done him half so much honour. Their praise was like that of a council upon his own side of the cause— Johnson's was like the grave, well-considered, and impartial opinion of the judge, which falls from his lips with weight, and is received with reverence. What he did as a commentator has no small share of merit, though his researches were not so ample, and his investigations so acute as they might have been, which we now certainly know from the labours of other able and ingenious critics who have followed him. He has enriched his edition with a concise account of each play, and of its characteristic excellence. Many of his notes have illustrated obscurities in the text, and placed passages eminent for beauty in a more conspicuous light, and he has in general exhibited such a mode of annotation as may be beneficial to all subsequent editors. His Shakespeare was virulently attacked by Mr. William Kendrick, who obtained the degree of LLD from a Scotch university, and wrote for the booksellers in a great variety of branches. Though he certainly was not without considerable merit, he wrote with so little regard to decency and principles and decorum, and in so hasty a manner, that his reputation was neither extensive nor lasting. I remember one evening when some of his works were mentioned, Dr. Goldsmith said he had never heard of them, upon which Dr. Johnson observed, Sir, he is one of the many who have made themselves public without making themselves known. 
a young student of Oxford of the name of Berkeley wrote an answer to Kenrick's review of Johnson's Shakespeare. Johnson was at first angry that Kenrick's attack should have the credit of an answer, but afterwards, considering the young man's good intention, he kindly noticed him, and probably would have done more had not the young man died. In his preface to Shakespeare, Johnson treated Voltaire very contemptuously, observing upon some of his remarks, these are the petty criticisms of petty wits. Voltaire, in revenge, made an attack upon Johnson, in one of his numerous literary sallies, which I remember to have read, but there being no general index to his voluminous works, have searched in vain, and therefore cannot quote it. Voltaire was an antagonist with whom I thought Johnson should not disdain to contend. I pressed him to answer. He said perhaps he might, but he never did. Mr. Burney, having occasion to write to Johnson for some receipts for subscriptions to his Shakespeare, which Johnson had omitted to deliver when the money was paid, he availed himself of that opportunity of thanking Johnson for the great pleasure which he had received from the perusal of his preface to Shakespeare, which, although it excited much clamour against him at first, is now justly ranked among the most excellent of his writings. To this letter Johnson returned the following answer. To Charles Burney, Esquire, in Poland Street. Sir, I am sorry that your kindness to me has brought upon you so much trouble, though you have taken care to abate that sorrow by the pleasure which I receive from your approbation. I defend my criticism in the same manner with you. We must confess the faults of our favourite to gain credit to our praise of his excellences. He that claims, either in himself or for another, the honours of perfection, will surely injure the reputation which he designs to assist. Be pleased to make my compliments to your family. I am, sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. October the 16th, 1765. From one of his journals I transcribed what follows. At Church, October 65. To avoid all singularity, Bonaventura. To come in before service and compose my mind by meditation or by reading some portions of scriptures, Tetty. If I can hear the sermon to attend it, unless attention be more troublesome than useful. To consider the act of prayer as a reposal of myself upon God and a resignation of all into his holy hand. End of section 32